Chapter 5. Sundering The world changed after Koyos and became a darker place in the months that followed. Urza retreated to the quarters he shared with his brother as soon as the three investigators returned to the camp, emerging only for meals. Soon after, Mishra moved out of those quarters, taking a tent among the diggers. He could have taken a permanent housing among the students, but Tokasia felt the young man was making a statement both to his brother and to her. The two brothers sniped at each other, continuing now. Urza noted publicly that Misha had instructed the students to dig too deep. Misha shot back that Urza was demanding more students to clean the artifacts that he truly needed. Mealtimes were particularly stressful. The arguments were no longer exchanges of wordplay and ideas. An edge of steel, like the blade of a dagger, had slipped into the boys' conversations. Questions now seemed like barbed hooks, and answers held hints of threat and challenge. A few times, Misha blew up at his brother at the table, and after a month, Urza stopped attending the communal dinners at all, instead taking his meals in his quarters. He had apparently used Misha's half of the room to expand his workspace, which irritated his brother all the more. Misha appeared at dinner for a month beyond that, brooding over the meals. Then he began to dine in the diggers' camp. Neither brother spoke of personal matters, not to Tokasia, nor anyone else. To the old scholar, they were polite and tried to keep the conversation focused on the nature of the excavations, for Misha, or on the latest reassembled marvel, for Urza. When the subject of the caverns came up, however, both young men would turn taciturn and abrupt. In part, Tokasia felt, it was the stones that had altered their relationship. Urza had fit his to a claw-like clasp of gold and wore it about his neck on a chain. Misha too wore his around his neck, but in a small leather sack dangling from a thong in the manner of the Falaji talismans. Tokasia did not know if the shattered power stone had created the anger within her two best students or merely unearthed and crystallized resentments that had been fermented for years. Soon after Koilos, she went to each and asked to examine the stones themselves, seeking to unlock their mystery. Urza refused to give up his stone. Instead, he said, he wanted to examine it himself. Surely Tokasia trusted him to make a fair and rational examination? What he did not say, though Tokasia sensed it, was that he was afraid she would turn over the stone to his brother. Misha would play on the old scholar's feelings. He was the younger brother. Therefore, Tokasia would give Misha a chance to examine both halves of the stone. Misha, in turn, would not give up his stone. If Urza kept his half of the stone, he said contemptuously, he would hold his as well. What he did not say, but Tokasia felt, was that he was afraid she would turn over the stone to his brother. Urza would appeal to her reasoning. Urza was the elder brother. Therefore, Tokasia would give Urza the chance to examine both halves of the stone. The archaeologist was thoroughly frustrated. Neither brother would move without the other. Neither trusted her sufficiently to let her examine the gems. She turned to the other stones, both the flickering fragments that still held some power and the dull cracked remains that had lost their energies. There was nothing there. None of the power stones they had discovered had similar powers. Mishra's stone seemed to induce weakness in its targets, whether living or artificial. Urza's gem apparently strengthened its targets, and in fact, allowed the spark of animation to enter the bears of mechanical husk. No other stones, Tokasia noted sadly, seemed to have encouraged such avarice and anger in their possessors. The nature of the energy itself continued to elude Tokasia. She knew it existed, and that it could be harnessed by the devices using the Thrandazides they had deciphered. Yet the nature of that energy was beyond her. What was it, and how did it come into being? Was it natural to the crystals, or was it something that Thran had entrapped there? The questions were there, but not the answers, and her own failure to answer darkened Tokasia's mood further. To be fair, the black moon in the camp was not all the brothers doing, at least not directly. More Falashi than Amal had expected were offended by the fact that the archaeologists and her colleagues had found the secret heart of the Thran. Diggers abandoned the camp in droves. Old Amal was clearly embarrassed by this turn of events, since he had assured Tokasia that few of his people would be scared away by ancient legends of the long-dead Thran. 
Indeed, as word of the discovery of coil spread, the flow of artifacts recovered by the desert people, so abundant in previous years, dried up almost entirely. Part of that drought was caused by an increase in desert raids. A number of tribes, such as the Sawardi, quiet for decades, were more active now. They raided merchant caravans and even struck in the Argive itself. The school had not been attacked, owing to its own group of native Falaji, but it was only a matter of time, Tokasia felt. Amal agreed. There are numbers beyond numbers of families, tribes, and clans among the Falaji, he said one evening, ten months after Koyos. They sat beneath Tokasia's tarp, sipping nabis. Most of the rest of the camp had gone to bed. The only lamps still burning were from Urza's quarters, and those had been dimmed. The brazier between Tokasia and Amal crackled low. The Falaji spread his fingers and ticked off a roster of tribal names. The wealthy Muhari, the once mighty Gestos, and my own tribe, the Thaladin, he said. There are others like the Tomokul, who have the nearest thing you outlander people would think of as a city. The Tomokul claim general rulership over the others, but they are not the true masters of the various tribes either. The clans follow strong leaders. So for one generation, everyone followed the Gestos, because they had a wise leader. For the next, they followed the Muharin, because the Muharin had a great warrior as their leader. And now the desert people follow a new tribe, said Tokasia bitterly, sipping at her nabis. She took it hot, in the desert south, but never cared for the cinnamon. The Sawardi, agreed Amal. They moved in from the southwestern lands when I was a boy, from the area bordering the outlander state of Yordia. They have a Kadir, a leader who has gained many allies. He talks of the old times when the Falaji people were powerful, and he fans resentment against the coastal nations, particularly those who are spreading into Falaji lands. Are these Sawardi your leaders now? asked Okasia. Amal shrugged. Not like your kings and warlords and nobles are leaders. My people put great value and respect. They respect the Sawadi for what they have accomplished, and therefore listen to their message. Many worry about the coastal nations moving inland, taking land from the traditional Falaji grounds. Many worry about the discoveries we are making. We are discovering things for everyone, Tokasia said flatly. That I agree with, returned Amal. And I thought the others would agree as well. But they see the artifacts they bring in to trade, as well as the ones we dig up, moving eastward to Argive, southeast to Corlys, or south to Yodia. They worry what great and wondrous things are being lost to them. And these Sawardi play on that worry, concluded Tokasi. They gather power by creating a common threat, whether one is truly present or not. Amal nodded and said dryly, You are familiar with the process. Tokasi laughed and took a long pull on her nabis. Basic Argivian politics. The kings of Argive have survived for years on that principle, playing one faction against another. They do things in Penrigan that would make your head spin. At least the Falaji are honest about being someone's enemy. This is why we have not moved, and should not move the base camp to Koilos, said Amal. The only way into the canyon where the caverns are found is through the deep desert, Tokasia began. The deep desert is held by the Sawari tribe and their allies. Word has gone out that any non-Falaji found in their lands will be considered Sawardi property, to be disposed that they see fit. Tokasia spread her hands and looked at the wooden surface beneath her wrinkled fingers. The desert had practically won its battle with the great Argavian table. It was wobbly and brittle now. The last of its pearl inlay had surrendered to the differences in temperature and to the dust. Soon she would have to break it up for firewood. Tokasia had not realized how much she would miss the table, both as a level space and as a reminder of distant Penrigan. Would they have had this problem with the tribesmen had Urza had not been so brilliant with maps and calculations, or Misha so close to the desert tribes and their legends? 
Tokasia shook her head. The past was a past, as inviolate as the rocks from which she and her followers pulled the Thran devices, as solid as the metals they carefully pieced together in the workshops. A silence grew between her and Amal. The only sound was the crackle of the brazier. You are not thinking of the desert tribes or your dig site, said Amal at last. You are thinking of your two young men. Tokasia let the silence continue, then said, They have been fighting again. Ever since they visited the secret heart of the old ones, said Amal. Tokashia shot the leader of the diggers a look, and he held up a hand. No, they do not tell me what happened there. No one tells this old digger anything, but it is clear to me and everyone else they had a great falling out, the kind of battle that brothers do not recover from. Last week they almost came to blows at the dig site. He shot her a sidelong glance. You know? Tokasia nodded. Urza thought Nisha was digging too deep to find any parts for an onulet. When the diggers found such parts, Urza all but accused Misha of planting the find there in the trench. Misha found the pieces of that onulet shoulder mounting fairly, said Amal. But then he drove the diggers on into the heat of midday, when we normally nap. He would have been happy with nothing less than the complete onulet rising from the earth, fully formed and alive, just to prove his brother wrong. Takasya nodded. Each day they get worse, and neither wants to talk to the other about it. Whenever they're in the same place, the conversation breaks down into an argument. Then they continue arguing with me afterward, trying to show me more where the other was wrong. And when I try to show them that they may be wrong, each acts as if I have sided with the other. The past few months have been the worst of all the years I've known them. Amal leaned forward. The Falaji believe that the man is made of stone and fire, sky and water. The perfect man holds all these elements in balance. The younger brother, he has had more fire than he needed on the first day I met him, and he has more fire than he needs now. The older brother is consumed by stone, cold and unyielding, unable to bend. He will shatter or be worn away. Your guidance have a similar belief. The few follow it these days, said Tokasa. The world is divided into reality and dreams. The old temple priest of Argive would say both those young men have been consumed by their dreams and are forgetting their reality. Amal grunted. Does Ursa speak of dreams to you? Tokasa shook her head. Urza speaks to no one anymore. Not to me. Not to his brother. She looked at the diggers. Does Misha? Amal nodded. No to me. But he does speak. To Hajar, one of my younger assistants, who is closer to him in age and temperament. Hajar has been bitten hard by the fire as well. And he dreams of being a great warrior. I fear we will lose him to the Sawari. And soon. But Misha has told Hajar, who has told me, and I tell you, that Misha has dreams. Of what? asked Tokasia, pouring herself more in a beast. Darkness? said Amal, spreading his fingers out to catch the warmth of the brazier. He says there is a darkness out there, a darkness that sings to him and tries to draw him to it. He tugs at it like a jackal hanging on his trouser legs, and he fears it. He said that? prompted Tokasia. Amal shrugged. Misha talks to Hajar, Hajar talks to me. I talk to you. Each time someone talks to another, things are added. Other things forgotten. Perhaps you should ask him yourself. He probably would not tell Hajar. Hajar, I am afraid of my dreams. But Misha does sleep in the diggers' camp, and everyone knows he sometimes awakens in the middle of the night, shouting at things that are not there. Tokasia was silent for a moment. She could not say if Misha had done this before Koilos, when Misha and Urza had quartered together, but Urza had never said anything about the matter nor had Urza spoken of his own dreams, if indeed he had any. 
You know they each took something with them when they left Coelos? asked Tokasia. The gems of power, replied Amal. They look like the ones that you say move the old one's machines. Each of the young masters has one, yet each man keeps a stone close to himself at all times. Could the stones be responsible? queried Tokasia. Could these energies be causing the young men to act like this? Amal shrugged, and Tokasia added, Do you know what their stones can do? Misha had not talked to me of the matter, said Amal flatly. Perhaps to Hajar, but he let the words hang in the hot desert air for a long moment. Urza's gem makes things stronger, said the scholar. He calls it his might stone. Misha seems to have the opposite effect. Urza has named it the weak stone. Amal cordled. That probably does not sit well with the younger brother, to have the weaker stone. It doesn't, said Tokasa. Urza knows it, so he calls it that to Misha's face. What does Misha call it? asked Amal. Tokasia thought for a moment. I've never heard him refer to it as one thing or another. It's his, Misha's, stone, and the other one is his, Urza's stone. That sounds right, observed Amal. The older brother always had a tendency to name things, to identify them. It makes them his, I suppose. Tokasia sighed. All these years they have been with us, she said, and they remain as great a mystery as the energy within those power crystals, as the Thran themselves. The Thran, the old ones, you and I will understand, eventually, replied Amal. For they have the good sense to stay dead, the living. They keep changing as time goes along. It is harder to climb upon a moving mount. Old Falaji saying, Takasia raised her cup. Old Digger saying, said Amal, returning the salute. From this old Digger in particular. The conversation moved to other subjects, such as the new layer of hard sandstone they encountered at the second site, and whether Bly would need additional outriders for his caravan, and how much he would try to charge Takasia for them. Finally, Amal made farewells and left the tarp. The night was pleasant and Tokasa knew she would probably sleep sitting up in her camp chair, wrapped in a soft fur from Dwarven Sardia. Amal slowly walked through the camp. The fires had been banked, and the lamps had all been extinguished. Even the lamps from Urza's quarters, usually the last to be doused, were now darkened. The old digger stood in the center of the camp, and looked upward at the stars. The moons had not risen yet, and above the old Falashi, the sky pinwheeled in a heavy scattering of stars. Amal tried to imagine if the sky over the far-off coastal cities looked this beautiful, and decided against it. Fires burned long and wastefully into the night there, obscuring the sky with their smoke, so much like city peoples everywhere. There was a movement to his left, and the sound of sandals scraping against the dirt. Slowly, Amal turned toward the noise, keeping his head raised toward the stars, but allowing his eyes to sweep the shadows. The moonless light was dark, but not dark enough to foil the sharp eyes of the Falaji. There was a rustle along the shadowed side of one of the students' barracks. Then came a soft, muffled cough. Someone there? called Amal, suddenly looking directly at the shadow. Show yourself, shadowy one, or I'll wake the camp. A lean form stepped from the shadows, dressed in dark linen, thin and wiry. Amal recognized Hajar, chief of his assistants. The young Falashi smiled guiltily, his teeth filling his narrow face. It is a beautiful night, and I could not sleep, he said. I thought that I would go for a walk. Amal smiled. It is a beautiful night. And I've been walking myself, he said. Let the stroll back together. The old digger turned away, but Hajar did not move from his position. Are you coming? Amal asked, then added with a smile, Or are you not alone? To the shadows behind Hajar, he said, 
You can come out now as well. Amal had expected Hajar's companion to be one of the noble girl students entrusted to Takasya. Such romances, though officially frowned upon, were common enough and Amal still remembered his own youth well enough to note all the justifications and excuses one makes in such situations. A stern lecture and a word to Tokasya to keep an eye on the archiving girl was all that usually resulted from such a discovery. Amal was thus surprised when the figure who stepped out from the shadows was not a young woman, but the familiar, broad-shouldered form of Mishra. Amal's smile turned to puzzlement, and the old digger said, Good evening, young master. Are you enjoying the beautiful night? Mishra smiled, and even in the starlight, Amal could see it was a thin, inconsequential smile. I needed to fetch something from Urza's, from my old quarters, he said. I brought Hajar along to help. I see, said Amal cautiously. And this something was so critical that you needed to fetch it now, in the dead of night, when even your brother would be asleep? Yes, said Mishra. The young man seemed to be turning the idea over in his mind a few times, then apparently he decided to stick with it. His back straightened, and he said again, Yes, something important. Do you doubt me? By this time, Amal had closed the distance between himself and the pair. He could smell the odor of desert wine on them. It was more powerful than on himself. Not at all, young master Mishra, said Amal. And this is something is so heavy and you need a second man, or perhaps a third to carry it? Yes, said Mishra, then perhaps feeling he had given too much away, correct himself. No, not really. Hajar is here more for company. Ah, said Amal. Well, I have a need for Hajar. If you could spare him, he can run an errand for me. Mishra's face clouded, and Amal wondered if the lad would continue alone or merely abandon his task. It was obvious he was headed for his brothers, and Amal thought it was likely the younger brother planned to confront Urza with an argument. The youth had obviously taken his courage from a wineskin, a time-consuming task that accounted for the late hour. Mishra gave another thin smile. Of course. If you need Hajar for some matter, I can gladly do without him. A small matter, said Amal. I could use the help, but I tell you again. I don't think your brother is awake. His lamps are out. Mishra shook his head. Sometimes my brother lies awake in the darkness and plots into the night. I would be surprised if he was truly asleep. Amal raised his hands in mock surrender. As you say, you know him better than I. Come, Hajar. I have work for you. The wiry Falaji crossed toward Amal, and the older man turned. The pair started back toward the diggers' camp. Amal looked back. Misha already melted back into the shadows. So why are you there, Hajar? The narrow-faced youth scowled in the starlit darkness. I do not know if I could tell you. We are Falaji, said the older man. If I cared to find out, I could show you that your mother's family and my mother's family share a common mother. Come with me. What are you up to? Stinking of nabis and slinking through the shadows like jackals. The Falaji stopped as clearly motion and morale did not work simultaneously. Amal waited. At last, the youth said, Young Master Misha was angry. Angry at Urza? asked Amal. The shadow nodded in the darkness. About how Master Urza was always picking on him, was always showing him up, how his brother was trying to trick him out of his stone. And finally, he got drunk enough and angry enough to do something about it, finished Amal. The narrow shadow shrugged. Yes, that was it thought Amal. Wake your brother up in the middle of the night to finish an argument from three days before. Get all your thoughts lined up, soak them with alcohol, and set them on fire. If he was planning for Urza to be awake when he got there, a nasty thought crystallized in Amal's mind. 
Perhaps the younger brother was indeed going to Urza's to retrieve something. The thought sent a small chill up the old digger's spine. Quickly, he said to Ajar. I have an errand for you after all. Go up to Tukasia's tarp. She should be sleeping there in a chair. Wake her. Tell her what you told me, and tell her to meet me at the brothers, at Master Urza's quarters. Hajar hesitated. I don't think... He started. Amal hissed. You have drank too much to be trusted with thinking, lad. I tell you to fetch Mistress Tokasia and fetch her you will, or the next trench you will dig would be for the student's pretty. Now off with you. The sharpness of the words cut like a knife through Hajar's drunken confusion. Very much awake and alert, the lad moved quickly toward the rocky outcropping where Tokasia kept her tent. Amal shook his head and quickly made for the cabin where Urza and Mishra had grown up. It was a heavy squat thing made of rough-hewn timbers with a gray slate roof. An equally stout door and candlewax paper windows sealed it against the desert dust. Comfortable for one, thought Amal. Suitable for two young boys and tight for two young men. And possibly so for two young men who were angry at each other. A lamp now glowed through the windows. So if burglary was Misha's intent, it had been foiled. There were voices as well, sharp and argumentative. As Amal approached the cabin, the voices were loud to his hearing, but indistinct. Misha's voice was a drunken bellow, while that of Urza's had a sharp, nasty twang. Amal stood across the path from the cabin's doorway. Unless something or someone came flying out the door, he decided, the best course of action would be to wait, or at least to wait for Mistress Tokasia. The sound spread. Other lamps were coming on, from the barracks and quarters of the older students. If young Master Misha was hoping for a private argument, Amal mused, he had been denied that as well. Now Urza was shouting. All Amal could make out were cries of, Thief! And, Liar! Tokasi arrived, accompanied by Hajar. The young Falaji took stock of the situation and immediately dispersed in a puff of night air, heading back to the digger's tents. He would no doubt spread the word that the two brothers were finally having it out. Tokasi seemed groggy, as if suddenly awakened. She ran her fingers through her short graying hair. Why haven't you stopped them? She asked them all. I haven't heard any furniture breaking, returned the older man. Even then, we shall wait a bit longer. This fight has been brewing for months between these two. They need to get it out of their systems. There was a sound of glass breaking within the quarters. Tokasi took a step toward the cabin's front door, but Amal held out an arm. Every time the boys fight, someone breaks up the argument, he said. Let them go on. There may be some cuts and bruises, but they need to sort out their way. The shouting was almost incoherent now, more like barking wild dogs than the sound of human voices. There was another crash, this time of something heavy. Most of the students had gathered out in the front of the cabin, and some of the diggers had arrived with Hajar. Then there was a new glow, visible through the windows. The golden radiance of the lamp was joined, then overwhelmed by beacons of red and green. Amal lowered his arm. He had never seen such colors before from a lamp. He wondered if the brawl had started to fire. Suddenly, the idea of letting the two young men pummel each other into understanding did not seem as wise as it had a moment before. The stones, said Tokasia, her voice dry with fear. They are using the stones against each other. The Thren stones? asked Amal. But he was speaking to empty air. The ancient scholar was already moving for the door. A moment later, Amal followed her, waving the others to stay back. Tokasi was through the door first. Amal hot on her heels. The Falaji smelled smoke and noticed small scorch marks burning along the interior of the room, though there were no outright fires. The brothers were at opposite ends of the room. Each clutched his stone. Urza's flickered with red bolts of flame, while Mishra's radiated lances of greenish light. The bolts met in the center almost as if physical arms grappled with one another, each color trying to overwhelm the other. The display of power was taking its toll on the brothers. Misha was sweating like a winded horse, 
Blood streamed from his nostrils. Urge's face was a rictus of concentration and pain, and he too was bleeding from the nose. Mishra was slightly crouched, while his brother stood haughty and erect. Each clung to his power stone with both hands. The room itself had been affected by the bolts of might and weakness. It was hot in the cabin. The air shimmered with a song of power, a rising, throbbing noise that grew louder each moment. Neither young man would yield, and the space between them glowed brighter by the moment. Tokasia raised her hands and shouted something Amal did not understand. Neither brother paid the slightest attention. So intent were they on their private duel. Tokasia cried out again and stepped forward into the bands of red and green, her hands raised as if she were trying to physically silence the boys and their gems. Amal joined her cry himself and leapt forward, but he was too late. Tokasia broke one of the ruby green jade red beams. As one, both brothers stared up at her. Their concentration slipped, their lancing beams suddenly sprayed in all directions, and the room exploded. Amal felt himself physically lifted by the blast and thrown backward, out where the door should have been. The blast blew away all four of the walls and most of the roof and showered the observers outside with splinters and flaming chunks of wood. Amal realized he was looking at the stars again. They spun gently above his upturned face. Slowly, he pulled himself to his feet, feeling something soft give in his left knee. The old digger grimaced and pulled himself up. There were moans around him from the wounded onlookers and shouts from those attending them. He had not heard the noise before and wondered if he had gone deaf for a moment from the blast. There were more torches now, he saw, and someone lit a bonfire. Amal staggered to his feet and saw the remains of the old cabin. It was almost entirely destroyed, only one corner still standing. The entire perimeter was smoking, framing the forms within. There were two, kneeling over a third. Amal limped into the wreckage of the cabin. Tokasia's form lay on Urza's lap, while Misha knelt at her side. She lay like a broken doll, her neck canted at an odd angle to her body. Misha held up his fingers to her neck, then looked up at Amal. The younger brother shook his head. Urza looked up as well, ignoring Amal and glaring at his younger brother. It was a hate-filled stare that blazed through the tears streaming down his cheeks. Amal could not remember Urza ever crying in all the time the young man had been in the camp, but beneath the tears, the digger saw accusing fury in Urza's eyes. Misha fell back from his brother as if he had been struck. He rose and staggered a few paces away from Tokasia's body. Urza did not move, nor did he say anything. Misha took a step away, then a second, and then the younger brother was running, away from the shattered house and into the night. No one stopped him in his flight. Amal laid the last of the cairn stones in place. The students had paid their respects, as well as the diggers, and Hajar had volunteered to make a marker stone to commemorate her resting place. In an area littered with holes and ditches, they buried her in the rocky soil of the outcropping where her tarp had been pitched. Urs remained beside her through the entire day as the body was dressed, the prayer spoken, old Argivian invocations and philosophy chants, and the last of the stones were laid over her. Of Mishra, there had been no sign, and everyone assumed he would not be seen again. Urza's face was gone from grief, and Amal, for a moment, thought the young man could be taken for older than Tokasia had been. The digger started to say something to him, but Urza held up a hand, silencing him. Amal nodded and retreated, limping on his injured knee, leaning on one of Tokasia's old staffs for support. It was the afternoon of the first day after Tokasia's death. At the dawn of the second day, Amal returned to find Urza in the same position, as if he had been turned to stone to serve as a statue commemorating Tokasia's passing. Master Urza, we must talk, said Amal softly. Urza nodded. I know. There is much to do. There is still a school to run, digging to continue, things to take out of the ground. He said the last in a flat, toneless voice, as if it were the last thing he wanted to do. We have many things we must discuss, said Amal. Most of the other students and diggers are all right, though a handful were injured in the blast. 
Nothing serious. Urza nodded, and Amal wondered if Urza had even thought of the others in the camp, or of his own minor injuries. The scrapes and burns along his arms and neck already had nasty, dark scabs on them. Amal shook his head and forced up the words. It would be best to send the students back to Penrigan as soon as possible. Urza looked up at Amal, surprised. Awareness flickered behind the eyes, dead a few moments before. We need to continue Tokasya's work, the young man said, stammering in his intensity. We need to keep going. Amal sighed. The Falaji follow people more than ideas. The Falaji respected Tokasya, and they followed her. They might have followed your brother, who lived among them. But you? They do not know. You rarely spent time with them. They will not stay. We can get other diggers, protested Urza. And there are the students. We can use them. Without Falaji present, you will be more of a target for desert raiders, Amal said. There are increasing numbers of Falaji who do not like Argivians and what they think of as their land. You would have to bring in more men from Argive. Soldiers. Diggers. It is not a place for students anymore. Urza's mouth was a thin line. I see. Amal could almost see the young man's thoughts as one conclusion led to another. Tell me, he said finally. Am I safe here now? Amal looked at the cairn. He once assured Tokasha that there would be no trouble and had been wrong. He would not make a similar mistake again. I do not think you are. The students will be safe. But there are those among my people who blame you for Tokasia's death, for Misha's disappearance. Urza looked down. I do not know where he is, he said softly, then added, I'd wish he'd come back. Amal nodded. I wish he would as well. He put his hand on the young man's shoulder. Urza shuddered for a moment, unused to the touch, and shied away. The digger dropped his arm and left the young man at the cairn. A message about the disaster was sent to Penrigan by Ornithopter, and the craft returned with a ran and to a mall surprise, Rich Lau. The young noblewoman was to take stock of Tokasa's work in writing, while the older nobleman was to oversee the strike-in of the camp. A caravan was already being set up from Penrigan by worried parents, fearful that savage desert raiders were about to swoop down and slay their now unprotected children. Urza was gone by the time the evacuation caravan arrived. He had spent two days with Loran, summarizing Tokasia's notes, then lived with another, smaller caravan heading south. The young man told Loran he had no desire to return to Penrigan. To Amal, he made clear he had no desire to remain and watch his beloved camp abandoned. Of Mishra, there was no sign, though Richlaw ordered ornithopter patrols to try and find him from the air. If he ever returned to camp, none saw him or admitted to seeing him. Amal was the last to see Urza off. None of the other Falaji wanted to be near him, and there was no real work to be done now. The diggers themselves were drifting off in twos and threes. The camp felt like a town of ghosts, still occupied but missing its own secret heart. That heart had died with Tokasia. Amal watched from beside Tokasia's cairn as the caravan, made up of friendly Falaji, wound its way out of the camp. Urza was on foot, using one of the mentor staves as a hiking staff. That and a few drained crackled power stones were the only thing he took from the camp. Those things in his knowledge thought the Falaji digger. Urza turned, looking up at where Amal stood. No, corrected the old man. He was looking at where Tokasia lay. Amal was too far away to see the young man's face clearly, but he saw Urza's shoulder dejected and defeated. Amal thought he understood. The young man had lost his mentor, his home, and his brother, all because of the actions of a single knight. What Amal did not understand, and what would take years for him to understand, was for which of the three losses was the hardest for the young scholar to bear.